I didn't like the fact since I was a kid that beauty is as important and almost just like indispensable in a woman's life and to her success in other fields that have nothing to do with beauty. It's not about like if you want to be a model. It's like it's table stakes to do anything. And I was talking to the philosopher Claire Chambers from Oxford. And one of the things that she said was, you know, it's not like this is one of the many ways in which women can succeed. It is a way in which women must succeed to do anything. And I didn't want to play. Have I played sometimes? Yep. Am I sure exactly what the balance is? Because I also don't want to like feel like I can never celebrate youth and beauty. You only get those for a little while. It'd be nice to enjoy them sometimes. But I think they are way over indexed. And I knew from the very beginning of my stage career that I didn't want to pin my public presentation on a figure that I wouldn't have in 10 years or 15 years because I'd still have my mind in 10 years or 15 years. And I wanted to make sure that I had a forum for that expression. That was Dessa, and this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, Shiro's Radio. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. Today's guest will tell you that her journey to becoming a performer and musician was a somewhat circuitous one. This could also be said of realizing her earliest dreams of being a writer. But follow the thread of Dessa's first and deepest love of language and the rich tapestry of what has become a full-fledged multi-hyphenate career perhaps doesn't look as circuitous as it is actualized. From writing to poetry slams, from poetry slams to joining the Minneapolis independent rap crew Doomtree, and then her solo career, Dessa's creative life encompasses not only major success as a singer, rapper, producer, and performer, but also as published writer with pieces in the New York Times and National Geographic Traveler to her name, as well as two literary collections and her 2018 memoir in essays, My Own Devices. A college philosophy major, Dessa's fascination with the intersection of art, psychology, science, and the human condition has found its way into what she calls the conversation arts. She's hosted a BBC and American public media podcast called Deeply Human, has hosted a TED Talk on her science experiment on how to fall out of love, and is a public speaker, academic, and lecturer on art, science, and entrepreneurship. Now back with her first full-length album in five years called Bury the Lead, I'm so thrilled to welcome Dessa as this week's Shiro in the spotlight. Dessa, welcome to Shiro's. Thanks so much for having me. Congratulations on this new album, Bury the Lead. It's your first in five years. And I was going to ask you to start today by talking about the fact that you've been releasing music consistently in that time frame and now are here with this album. I'm curious about in your creative process, what is the difference for you and what still drives you to make albums? Yeah, you know, I think for me, I'm always eager to like custom build the format around the art itself. So, you know, if you've got four songs that seem like a really great project, you know, I think of like TV on the radio and their first EP. It was perfect. It was really little and it was so good. So in some ways, I'm hyper aware, I think, of the fact that what we consider like a standard LP length is just sort of the arbitrary product of like how much music you could get onto a 12 inch vinyl, you know. And so I try to let each project dictate the scope of itself. That said, the industry doesn't love anything other than full lengths. You know, EPs just don't get the same kind of attention. And usually singles don't either. So I, like most artists, am aware of and often at least partially subject to some of those pressures. Well, maybe you could tell us about what brought you to bury the lead. Like, what said to you, OK, this grouping of songs is going to be this. Yeah, totally. So during the pandemic, I had been releasing music on a single by single base. You know, all of us not knowing how long lockdown was going to last and not knowing when and if and how touring would be resurrected. And so I liked the idea of releasing one song at a time. I did so on the 15th of every month. And I called the project Ides. And it felt good, you know, to have something to look forward to. And so that's how I'd been working for a while. And then 
after the restrictions started to lift and, you know, something that looked more like a familiar normal started to resume. I started working on songs again. I think I've always like leaned melancholy as a songwriter, but the melancholia that was ambient and airborne around us was so overwhelming that it didn't feel like it needed anybody to point it out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it was calling enough attention to itself. So I think on this new record, yeah, there is sort of like a hurricane party, which is the first track. Vibe, which is to say, yes, an acknowledgement of a storm at the door and overhead and like, you know, the provisioning of some booze and good food and friends to have a party anyway, because what's the alternative? Fill the kiddie pool up with Prosecco, get the LEDs on, need the spectacle, gotta beat the one last week. Let's get a record. If you're trying to be a go-getter, you gotta go and get it. Desperate times call for desperate pleasures. Some legitimate headlines, mostly cries for attention. The camera speeds, copy ready to read, ought to be a good night. We're live in three, two, dang man, busted on a hot Cause it's a hurricane, a hurricane party, end days every other Wednesday. Live girls dance, dead men float. A hurricane party, gold dust checks and party. DJ says don't hold back because the water our guest today is Dessa. The new album is Bury the Lead, and that kicks the whole thing off, Hurricane Party. And like you said, it brings you right into the mood of the album, this feeling of coming out of lockdown and the pandemic years, which are so uncertain, into a moment that feels equally uncertain. Another thing that happened during that time was you launched a podcast and you've always been somebody that has been, I think you use the words conversation arts, which I loved. I've never heard anybody refer to what we do on the microphone as conversation arts, but that appeals to me a lot. So I was just wondering whether anything shifted for you as a result of doing more when it came to conversation arts, when it came to being on this side of the conversation. Yeah, you know, I saw I, I started working on the podcast a few years before the pandemic. So that was on the BBC with iHeartMedia and American Public Media. But yeah, I think when I'm interviewing, I'm well aware of my experience as an interviewee. And when I am an interviewee, I am probably also well aware of the experience of an interviewer. I mean, I think pitfalls abound. <laughs> and in some ways, you know, I think the interests like on your side of the mic and on my side of the mic, they overlap. Like we both want to make an interesting conversation for the listener, something that prevents them right from turning the dial, something that's like worth their time. You know, they only have so much of that on the planet. So to ask for a 10 minutes of it isn't nothing. On the other hand, like our interests don't perfectly align, you know, and I'm aware of the fact that usually the person who's in my position, right, who's just released a project. You know, you hear it all the time. They've got their talking points, right? I want to say, I'm on tour. I want to say, the name of the record is Bury the Lead. And you want to make sure that I don't sound like a commercial. And so there is this sort of like <laughs> dance that, that we engage in every time we meet. Yeah. And I'll jump on that and say that the freedom that I've been able to avail myself of that kind of perfunctory conversation, promotional conversation that I would end up in time and time and time again with artists where like I always wanted to dig a little deeper. And I was excited to talk to you today because I see some parallels in terms of how you function as an independent artist who also brings activism into their work, who is interested in digging deeper into the human condition, who talks about and to the issues of feminism and is interested in getting below those layers and using your microphone in a way that is empowering. Well, thanks, first of all. But I'd say that, you know, whatever missteps I've made, and they are plentiful, I'm sure, along the way, that I think it's less for me about having a career as a musician and that affording me an opportunity to kind of, you know, delve into some of life's persistent mysteries about loss and communion and connection and conflict and all the rest. As it is, my drive to investigate loss and love and communion and conflict and all the rest is part of what attracted me to a career in the arts. You know, I studied philosophy in college, but on graduation, it's not real clear where to go to become a professional philosopher in our modern era, right? right. And so what are the fields in which reflection, introspection, and like a rhetoric that's 
imbued with a lot of emotive strength. Like, where are you allowed to think hard and feel big? And I think the arts is a great place for that. So what things do you feel like you are most proud of investigating in your work? What a nice question. I think that in my own life and in my work, the lesson that because someone hurt you doesn't necessarily mean they wronged you is a lesson that I often investigate in short stories or in song. Like there's a lot of ways to get your heart broken, even when everybody is playing pretty fair. That said, even when people aren't playing fair, like I remember talking to a philosopher when I was young who said, provide the argument that you were trying to dismantle. I was feeling like a hot shot because I thought I could see a logical flaw in a proof. And she said, you know, this philosopher is dead. So he's not here to defend his work. So to do a good job, you would have to provide a charitable interpretation of his argument, meaning you have to bolster his side too, because he's not here to do it. And that reframed the task to me in a lot of ways. Like the objective wasn't to be right, to win and to stamp down my opponent. Like the objective was to find the best and most solid account of the world around us. Like what's the best truth you can arrive at? What are some of the best insights? And that's a collaborative process. So I think trying to figure out what a charitable interpretation is, even of people who disappoint, who anger and who see like I'm real, real reluctant to out of hand dismiss a lot of folks as villains, even when they do bad things. So how does that since we're in this space specifically to talk about gender and music and where that intersects and the problems and the beautiful things about it, too. Can you put it in that frame? Yeah, totally. So I think and I wrote this song called Fire Drills, and it was one of the very few songs that I've written that addressed the issue head on, because for the most part, I was less eager to talk about gender directly than to say, hey, this is what my experience on the planet is like. And to trust people would know from my voice that they were hearing the story of a woman and could see for themselves the places of intersection and overlap. I think for a while in hip hop anyway, you know, there was this sort of pedestalization of women that was a totally understandable impulse to correct what had been a disregard, disrespect for women. But I admit that I also wasn't interested in pedestalization. I wanted, I wanted to be treated like a person who was trying to get loved and trying to get rent and trying to find meaning. And I'm not a queen or a goddess or an angel. Like, I'm a human and very much. <laughs> and so one of the things that I was careful to try to do in that song was, like, I didn't want guys to feel like when they heard it that I was vilifying them because I wanted to invite them in to, like, gently rethinking some of, you know, their presumptions about maybe like benevolent chauvinism, for example. And I'm aware of the fact that like I have blind spots. And so I would hope that I can forward the grace to somebody else's blind spots when it has to do with gender, let's say, that I would seek when I am being corrected about my own blind spots. Yeah. About, you know, religion or caste or whatever thing I haven't yet come across. Yeah. So would you mind talking to us a little bit about your personal journey and how this whole crazy thing of you as Dessa began when you became Dessa? When I was a kid, I was called Maggie. And then I was a teenager when I started going by Dessa. But in short, I started singing before I was of legal age at like a karaoke bar. So there's an obvious imperative not to use the name on your ID. And then for me, the pathway into music and to touring was sort of circuitous in that my mom had this really beautiful voice and could sing just objectively better than I could. And so it seemed really unlikely that I was going to find work or a career path anyway in music. And then as I grew up, I just realized like she has an exceptional voice and decided to do public relations. (laughs) You know, she chose a different path. But I had wanted to be a writer when I was a kid and I was not making any traction in college, you know, submitting a lot of essays and not getting any publication acceptance letters in my best friend encouraged me to go to a slam, like a poetry slam. And she said, I think you could do this. And I said, I think I could do this too. And so, you know, modified some of my essays and essentially performed them competitively at a slam and won. And unbeknownst to me, the people who won that night were committed to a year of competition on the Minnesota team. I also thought I was a hotshot, 
but it was because the really talented poets were on tour. <laughs> so <laughs> the talent pool was real was a little shallower than usual that day. But yeah, so for me, performance started kind of late. You know, I was 19 or 20 and I was competing as a poet. And then through that poetry scene, met rappers and eventually the members of Doomtree. I was a big admirer of that clique. They were aggressive and friendly and angry in what to me felt like a constructive way and nonconformists and cool and weird. And um, after being a fan for a while, I became friends. And then eventually, as they started to hear some of my early recordings, they asked me to join the crew. And very, very slowly, like on an organic growth curve, you know, we gained a little bit of regional notoriety and slowly started touring nationally and internationally over like a really, really slow incline. Doomtree is all male except for you, right? You were the first female member. I was, except I didn't know it because I think there were 12 members on their okay. like website or their mm -hmm. roster, you know what I mean, when mm -hmm. I joined. And one of them was named Emily Bloodmobile. And I was so stoked to meet Emily Bloodmobile because she made awesome beats. She was a producer. And then when it was time for our first like photo shoot as a crew after I joined, I was like, where's Emily? And they were like, dude, Emily's the pseudonym for Steph, who was my boyfriend. <laughs> So I had, I, I found out a little later than everybody else did that I was the only woman in the clique, but I was. And I would say that I think my ideas about that role then were kind of a product of the times. Like it felt like a badge of honor to be tough and be tough enough to roll with the guys. And a more, a more sophisticated view on it would wonder why, you know, would, would try to welcome other women in, I think, or just be aware of like, oh, what are systemically some of the hurdles and some of the obstacles? But in the moment, I think in my early 20s, it was very rough and tumble. And, you know, it's a lifestyle that is pretty rugged. You know, lots of sleeping on the floor. You know, I've been bitten by spiders and bugs you know, around the planet and slept in weird places in weird people's attics. Like it was kind of like a lost boy's adventure. And that did feel gendered in a way that I probably wasn't fully aware of it. I was partially aware and not fully. And I remember the first time someone was like, you know, if you're uh, I was listening to someone else speak about being the only woman in the rap crew. It was like, that can't be a badge of honor that we cherish because else it's like a disincentive to let other people in. And I remember being like, oh, that is correct. Yeah, I hadn't clocked that. That's correct. Yeah, there can be only one. Right. The whole scarcity thing. Yeah, exactly. How has that shifted for you over time? I mean, I think even just listening to this other woman talk, I think probably in a radio interview, was like, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, there was kind of a minor lightning strike. Like, yep, immediately should revise that kind of thinking. And I remember looking at my old bio and seeing, did it celebrate that I was the only woman in the crew? Oh, probably time to rewrite that bio, you know? And I think naturally now, in some ways, whether or not it's kind of a trend or a pendular shift, rap is populated by a lot of serious female heavy hitters. You know, yeah. I remember coming home. It was really sweet. I remember the first time the Monster song came out, which was Kanye, Jay-Z, Nicki. But I remember when Nicki's verse hit, you know, this was sort of like Nicki's big foray into the mainstream. The guys were around the kitchen table just playing it again and again and again. And when I walked in, you know, listen, listen. Oh, gosh, it was so good. And since Nicki, of course, you know, we have Megan, we have Ice Spice. So there's a lot of... There's a lot of women in the business now, too. And also, you know, I've set out to make my own solo career. So I perform with women and with men in my onstage ensembles. But I think there was a specially gendered bit about rap where it wouldn't have been unusual to be in a band if you were in a folk outfit, if there was another woman. And it was more unusual in the rap world. We have Dessa here with us on Shiro's and the new album is Bury the Lead. Why don't you pick a track for us to go to next? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This one is called Decoy. And this is one of the few kind of real rappy tracks on the record. Smoky eye because the mind's on fire. Break glass and pass the axe skyward. Stone the satellites, drone versus battle kites. Here goes the next past life. There's a speaker in a decoy. At the heart of the mind, the wine's the same bird song. Till the back of the line, if the digging is fine. Let's get the third shift on. They say that a rising tide, when it comes in, we'll lift every ship. But they skipped a bit about wildfire, how it burns every bridge. Panic, trying to find a little dry ground. Big backups, everybody outbound. Not me. I'm like the good witch. Bring me up a loving house down. 
Decoy from Barry the Lead, the new one from Dessa. She's our guest today on Shiro's. It's her fifth full-length studio album and her first full album in five years. I was curious about industry expectations of women in hip-hop versus men and if you could talk to us a little bit about how it was, how it is, and how you've managed to navigate in that space. Yeah, I think, you know, when I first started, I was aware of the fact that there are so many shades and gradations of a gendered headwind that one might encounter. And really not all of them were malicious. Sometimes people are being jerks, you know. So I remember once finishing a show that I'd sold out and the promoter, like in the basement late at night, which is usually where business happens after a show is done, offered me a fraction of my promised price, you know, which makes me sound like <laughs> Inigo Montoya or something. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it took like grabbing one of the dudes to be like, will you come and settle with me? Because this is BS, right? That said, those moments where there is such a clear righteousness, I win. There's no other way to view that than a jerk trying to take advantage of someone who he sees as occupying a lesser station of power. There were so few of those that weren't ambiguous in some way. So like the much more common kind of phenomenon would be like I went to Scribble Jam, which was like a hip hop festival and competition where you had battles of... MCs, you have battles of B-boys. And we rolled up, we set up our, it's also like a trade show, you know, we set up our little tent and all our merch and stuff. And the cat next to me was a rapper I admired. And he was like, oh, yo, are you the model selling merch? He's not being mean. It's just that most of the women he'd encountered in the past few years were the models selling merch, right? So I think being mindful of the fact that reacting with righteous anger felt really unlikely to make a meaningful connection where there was an opportunity to make a meaningful connection. Like, yo, I know your music. It's rad. Maybe you should know mine too. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I would say that because, you know, hip hop, particularly in that battle scene, which was not something that I was good at, was not something that I did, but it, it's part music, it's part competition, it's part, you know, wrestling match. It's it's a lot of things. And, and I liked that about it. You know, that was part of what attracted me to rap was like how much ink you get per song, how many words, but also I like the vibe. I like the swag. That's part of the form. You know, it's not page poetry and I write page poetry, but it's different. And so I think I really remained conscious of the people who pulled me aside to say like, hey, you know, essentially it's just more with honey than with vinegar, particularly if an error is made in ignorance as opposed to malice. So true. Wanted to talk to you about this quote about feminism and wondering if this still stands true for you. You said, in terms of feminists, I am a feminist, but I don't use that word a lot. It's a bit connotatively confusing. I hope its use is similar to the dictionary definition denouncing a prejudice based on sex. When some people hear it, they hear a man-hating lesbian who doesn't shave her legs. So if I can avoid the whole thing and just say I'm a humanist, I try to. I read that and thought, yeah, I mean, we've talked about that so much here on the show. Like feminism is a very complicated word and like a lot of people do don't like to use it. So this is not throwing shade on that comment at all. I just am curious about whether you could expand on that for us and also where you're at with that word now. Yeah, totally. I would say, first of all, <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting here as someone who hasn't shaved her legs <laughs> in, my, <laughs> in my closet, but I would say I care less about that word than I do about the principle for which it stands. And so, you know, what I'm kicking it with academics or when I'm kicking it on public radio, I think that there is a shared general understanding of what that word means. I think also it's aged pretty well. I think it used to sound more extreme than it does now. But if I were talking to someone who had a really bad view of feminists, right, and the conversation felt worthwhile, I'd rather actually continue to talk for a while before using that word and shutting it all down. Like, hey, here's what I understand human life to be about, you know? an opportunity for people to select their own paths according to their merit, ability, and human dignity, irrespective of the kind of bodies that they're born into, irrespective of who they love. 
I don't need to fight that hard for the term. That said, I would say I use it a lot more than I used to because I think I think it's gained a lot of acceptance. I think it turns off fewer people. But yeah, generally, I think I'm I'm more driven by values and semantics. Probably not in every case, but overall. We have Dessa here with us on Shiro's and the new album is called Bury the Lead. So two things that I talk about is genre and gender and how they can overlap or not. The limitations or not that come with identifying as a woman. Talk to us a little bit about gender and genre and how you have managed to remove those limitations and what your opinion is of them. Yeah, you know, I do think that there can be sort of a an unfortunate double standard, even just about like song content. So like across gender, you know, if you have a guy who's talking about a serious heartbreak and you can hear a male voice, it's like, okay, shut up. You know, Tom is being serious and he has something intense to say. And then if you hear a woman's voice, it's like, yeah, well, you would. (laughs) You know, you're naturally more inclined to share your emotions or talk about your interior life. So you get points, right, for being vulnerable and opening up if you're dude in a way that I don't think you do necessarily as a woman. I don't know if that's as true as it used to be, but I'm, I'm aware of that. And then I would say as I was coming up, I was paying a lot of attention to what people thought of me. Maybe too much attention, maybe not. Mm. But, you know, I was aware of the fact that, like, I remember the first time we played London or the first or second time, and we'd started off on a song where I didn't rap, so I was just kicking it. And then it was my turn, so I grabbed the mic, and I started to rap, and people went wild. And it wasn't because I was so good. It was because they thought until that point that I was the backup dancer. And so it was like, oh, she's going to rap. And I, I hated the idea of being perceived as an extra member, as a decorative member, as kind of frosting an already made cake. And so I was cautious about how much singing I did and on what songs in the early days, because, you know, women who sang on rap songs were very often considered super talented, but also sort of extra, like not somehow a core member of the clique. And so I was really eager to rap hard. And now I think I'm less mindful of that distinction in part, you know, not because maybe I've had like an epiphany and and always putting music first now, but in part because also the world has changed. Like there's less distance between rap music and pop music than there used to be. You know what I mean? So I... I don't feel like I'm forfeiting as much. And all of us, you know, like some pop songs, whereas I think as a backpack rapper, you hid that, (laughs) you know, your identity was backpack rap. So I sing more now. I lean into vocal harmony, which is one of my favorite parts of music making. But as far as genre, I think I realized early on, you know, the first record, probably the first full length that I put out, it was spanning a lot. That was noted by the critics. Some cats didn't like that. And then by the time I was making my second one, I was like, I think... I think it would bum me out so hard to try to stay in the same lane really narrowly. And my musical interests are wide enough that to tamp down everything that fell outside the lines would be such a bummer for me that I I wasn't too tempted to do it. You know, and and even when I tried, I found myself way out of the lines. And and I, I think I found solace in the idea that like, as a music listener, if I was like, yo, I want to play you something, you know, our first question isn't like, is this vaporwave? Like, I don't care what the genre is as much as I care of, like, is it good? Is it the kind of thing I dance to or the kind of thing I'd cry to? But beyond that, I think that retailers and critics tend to be a little bit more concerned with the exact demarcations of genre than when we make our own playlists. We let ourselves swing and maneuver pretty widely. And so I tried to find solace in that idea that when I was making my albums, I should kind of consider it a mixtape as much as I did an LP. Where would you see Barry the lead in terms of encompassing or breaking away from any conventions that you may have had put on you or that you put on yourself? Mm. Okay, in two ways, I would say, first of all, it reaches for the candied apple of pop music more deliberately and less apologetically. Like, I love a strong melody. I love a killer lyric that bears repetition. I love a big soaring chorus. And I think that, you know, for a long time that pop music has sort of been considered the absolute lowest common denominator. But I don't think that you have to lean into that as long as it's singable. And it's not crazy distracting. Like, I think you can have really sophisticated lyrics and really sophisticated wordplay and some interesting musical maneuvers as long as it stays, you know, like something that's moving both emotionally and bodily. And so on this one, there were moments when I thought this is a really writerly line for a pop song. 
I think that should be the be all and end all the conversation. Like, does it sound good? Does it sound like it sings easily when like a listener might want to do so along? And if so, like that meets muster to me. I don't think you have to dilute it any further than that to consider it pop. Can you point us in the direction of a track that you might have felt like, especially writerly, like you just said, or mm. that you pushed yourself into a, even a new level of that? Yeah. You know, I, and the song Long Wave, which features like, you know, trap hi hats. But I, I remember like, although I hope you can't hear too many of the tool marks. I mean, it doesn't sound like Bill Nye, the science guy wrote a pop song, but you know, I was researching like long wave radio and how it bounces around the planet. And this idea of kind of a lone female driver, long haul on the road, listening and hoping to find someone else still sending signal in this kind of dystopian last drive. Beijing to Bombay to Boise. Signal gets lost in the noise we Tune in but tap out before too long Chatter on the intercom Who's gonna go and get it? Someone else's job I'm on the road already But I keep the radio on That's called Long Wave. It's track 10 on Bury the Lead, the fifth full-length album for Dessa. She's our guest today on Shiro's, and I'm Carmel Holt. I'm so glad that you brought up the research of sound waves when you're talking about that. And it's another thing that I just love about you as a human and as an artist that you also have such a love for science and wear that proudly and you're involved with science. I was curious to know where that's at these days. Like, what are you up to in that arena? And what can you share with our listeners about how science and art have intersected for you, what that's done for your art? Yeah, you know, I think, okay, I don't want to overburden it, but I think that both like science and art and philosophy, all three of those sort of provide avenues for inquiry as much as they do anything else. They are a method as much as they are a lesson in themselves, you know? And so I think it does feel like there's sort of a, I don't know, a simpatico resonance between the three. That said, I also get that you can be a phenomenal scientist and not a songwriter, and you can be a virtuosic violinist and not be an organic chemist. And for me, I'm also aware of the fact that like my interest does stick pretty closely to human behavior. Like I like a little bit of botany and stuff, but for the most part, why do we do that? Yeah, it's the question that drives most of my work. Why do we do that? And also morality. Why do you think that something's righteous when I think it's really morally reprehensible? And there's obviously ample opportunity to consider those conversations, that kind of inquiry, that kind of moral inquiry, who's right and how come in the news today. But yeah, they feel like avenues for curiosity, I guess, all three of them. And mm. uh, as far as what I'm doing now, I put on a big show with the Minnesota Orchestra recently, and I tell a monologue in five parts between the songs that we feature. And I used the ship of Theseus, which is a philosophical thought experiment where you have this ship. It's sailing out of Athens, putting on a lot of miles, gets beat up, banged up. When it comes back, you fix the broken plank. You replace the broken sail. The mast busts, so you put a new one in. At what point is this ship no longer itself? Like after all of the component parts have been replaced, is the ship of Theseus still in fact the ship of Theseus? So I used that as an extended metaphor for our lives and ourselves. When are we the same and when have we changed? Do you rest? <laughs> <laughs> Do you Sometimes, yeah, but I don't have my hands as many things as you do. I do. I would say, yeah, not at a competitive level. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do to refuel your creativity and just to refuel yourself? 
Oh, you know, when you ask that question about like how do how do art and science you know overlap or when when and how? I think one of the things too that had not been intuitive to me when I was getting into writing and songwriting was that to make a good metaphor, which for me is the heart of writing. That's not true for everybody. Cats love plot. I don't really get plot. I love metaphor. Like you have to have something in the well to compare the experience that you're living to. Like you have to know that birds' bones are hollow in an effort to explain like a, you know, a very slender, frail woman perched on a bench in the park. Like you have to know about the world in an effort to make metaphor to the components of it that you see in your daily life. And so in some ways I feel like learning about science or whatever you dig, you know what I mean? Whether it's like anatomy or architecture or history, whatever drives you, like that's replenishing the well from which you will have to draw to make your work. Because otherwise you end up with those records that are like, I'm on the road again. It's, uh-oh, like that's a sign for me. Whenever too many of your songs are about touring, you don't have enough life. It's like Thoreau said, it's not about what you're looking at. It's about what you see. Yeah, exactly that. And in some ways it feels like what you see, right, is a product of what you know in the way that, you know, at the optometrist, you know, they put all those lenses in front of your eyes to get your prescription right. Like the knowledge base of your reading, of your travel, of your introspection provides you with those lenses to better see whatever it is that's in front of you. I'd love to use that, if you don't mind, as a segue point to talk about <laughs> what we see in front of us in terms of image when we're women doing the job that you're doing or really any job, but like you're in the public eye, being somebody that's lived and breathed, being in the hip hop scene for as long as you have. What has your personal journey been with image and like how you dress, how you present, how you're seen, all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think. In the beginning, just really uncomfortable with it. I hated the idea that to be an aural artist, you know, to make sound that I couldn't help but be seen. I hated that. You know, there's no way out of it in the way that when you sit quietly in a room, right, you're not inputting audio signal, but you are inputting into that room visual signal just by the way that eyes and ears work. So. Yeah. I hated the idea of having to cultivate an image. And you can tell, like, uh, you know, going through, I think, some of my early performance photos and footage, it's not well considered. It's sloppy just because I didn't want to care. So I didn't care because I didn't think it was important. But like, I probably should have cleaned up for Lollapalooza. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, I think in some ways I was spared the worst of it by the fact that I wasn't on a major label with a team of stylists pressuring me at a young age. I was in an indie rap crew that rejected out of hand, I think, a lot of those pressures. Perfectly? No. You know, it's like, oh, I hate materialism. Ooh, those SB dunks are dope. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I do know that early in my career, I decided that A, I would have been uncomfortable being as naked, I guess, on stage as the women on TV sometimes were. Like, I just personally would have been uncomfortable. But also, I didn't like the fact, since I was a kid, that beauty is as important and almost just like indispensable in a woman's life and to her success in other fields that have nothing to do with beauty. It's not about like if you want to be a model. It's like it's table stakes to do anything. And I was talking to the philosopher Claire Chambers from Oxford. And one of the things that she said was, you know, it's not like this is one of the many ways in which women can succeed. It is a way in which women must succeed to do anything. And I didn't want to play. Have I played sometimes? Yep. Am I sure exactly what the balance is? Because I also don't want to like feel like I can never celebrate youth and beauty. You only get those for a little while. It'd be nice to enjoy them sometimes. But I think they are way over indexed. And I knew from even in, you know, the very beginning of my stage career that I didn't want to pin my public presentation on a figure that I wouldn't have in 10 years or 15 years because I'd still have my mind in 10 years or 15 years. And I wanted to make sure that I had a forum for that expression, even after I didn't have any interest in a bikini. I really feel that. I rail against it. And I also am curious to find an answer how we can redefine it. Like, totally. it's just, you know, because it's like, it's frustrating to me that I have, you know, say a Bonnie Raitt on the show who's talking about only being willing to get photographed in certain light and being concerned with how she looks mm -hmm. at 70. And then young artists that are like in their 20s, 
early 30s talking about how they've been told like they got to hurry up because they're going to lose their looks. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And I would would also just say like, yeah, for all of my I feel like the thoughts that I've articulated and honed are sophisticated. Is my conduct always? No, because I'm vain and scared and self-conscious. If not like everyone, I feel those things. I feel a certain type of way. You know, when you like accidentally take a selfie of yourself. Yeah. That sucks usually. And the way that, you know, like everyone else, I'm aging. Do I revel in that? Not really. No. Does it sometimes bum me out? Yeah. And I'm aware of the fact that like, you know, I'm breathing the airborne culture, as is everyone that I didn't invent, of course. But if I can, I don't want to embrace. And I, and I do think <laughs> I, I could feel angry comments headed your way. So, so I'm sorry. But I think that <laughs> the way that we've rebranded our beauty culture as a form of self-determined feminism is not well supported intellectually, meaning The way that sometimes self-care is branded as beautification. And the idea that, yo, because you feel better, if you look beautiful, then you need not do any introspection about beautification. I don't think that's quite true. Do I feel better when I look beautiful? Yeah. That's because I drank the Kool-Aid, dude. That's because I drank the Kool-Aid. Like, I think that it's problematic is such a played out word and it's used too often. But I I think that the idea that anything that makes you feel good as a woman is an act of feminism is not true. We have Dessa here on Shiro's. The new album is Bury the Lead. Is there any song on this album that you feel like is a feminist song? Ooh, yeah. You know, it's funny. I think the one that I think at least has feminist threads is often cited in conversation as one that sometimes people say is the simplest and sounds just most like a love song. But there's a song called Blush, which is a song where the singer is very obviously in the throes of just like a standard issue infatuation. But the question is about how much do you change self-edit or self-curate in an effort to secure reciprocal love? Because there's a limit. You know what I mean? There's some things that like, hey, even if I know I say like, I loved that book too. (laughs) Godfather's also my favorite or whatever, you know, to steal a a joke from Barbie, but like how good is good enough and under what circumstances do we pair? Because hopefully, at least as I see it, like I would hate to pair or partner for fear and I would hate to pair or partner for the idea that a life is incomplete if lived alone. I'd love to pair for companionship and to have someone bear witness to my life and to feel like I have a confidant as I travel the world and my place in it. So yeah, I'd say the song Blush has some hidden feminist themes. You like it when I wear my hair down, but I say that way it just gets in my eyes. You say that's exactly what you like so much. I think that sums us up sometimes. I'll be your favorite me, mostly carefree. Laughs easily, but what you can't see in my routine is how hard it gets to keep the heartbeat clean. I can see the problem clearly, clearly. I can see the simple fact is that you like me in theory. I'm a moon for you Give you just the good side Save you all the best lines Sometimes I wish that I was immune to you Could see you and go right by Pull myself away from your high tide Blush on the new album Bury the Lead from Dessa, our guest on Shiro's today, and I'm Carmel Holt. I wanted to touch on production since you're the executive producer of this record. You are a producer. And this is something that comes up a lot also in this show. The lack of representation in production. I was wanting to throw that ball over to you and get your thoughts about production and gender. What an awesome question and super freaking rare so infrequently is production talked about, unless you are on a production podcast. So thanks. Um, You're welcome. I would say, so I'm one of the three executive producers on this record. It's me, my longtime collaborator, Laserbeak, and Andy Thompson. And we've been sort of a trio on the past few records. We have really different skill sets. 
So Andy Thompson is the only one of us that like knows how to read music and knows music theory. Laserbeak is a classic. Like if you imagine, you know, even just like the biopic televised version of a hip hop producer where you've got, you know, a box with buttons on it that bangs. Laserbeak makes everything bang. <laughs> and then I would say that my skill set, you know, usually has to do with melodies, bass lines sometimes and contributing some of those and in song structure. So one of the things that I remember hearing, I think it was Lauren Hill talk about was like, yo, make sure you get your credits, because I think it is often presumed that like a female voice is the hired voice, you know, all things being equal. And I remember talking to my dad about that, who was also a musician and he was a lutenist and a guitarist. Amazing. And he was like, you know, I never thought about that. And I started opening up all my CDs and all my vinyls saying, who did I think was the singer and who did I think was the musician? And... I remember going, okay, noted, like, make sure to get your credits when you got some. So yeah, on this record, I think very much like the sound is a product of the intersection of our Venn diagrams. You know, I don't have Andy's skills on keyboards. I don't have, you know, beaks like, yo, let me fine tune this snare in a thousand ways. But we all contribute and kind of push and pull, right? Until the sound is fully developed. And so, you know, sitting in like the mastering studio with Laserbeak, it's at the very end of the record, right? And when you decide how much space should be between songs, like on the vinyl, you know, and we would sit with our eyes closed and one song would end and you'd hear the last note, verb, tail, right? So, and then there was a moment of silence, eyes are closed. And then at the same time, we would both snap, you know, like, okay, that's where the next song should start. You know, everything from that kind of little thing to figuring out, hey, where do we need more drum fills? Where should we drop out the bass line? Where do we need another harmony? And getting into the mix notes. For me, I'm a sucker for to be part of those conversations. Yeah, I'm a control enthusiast. And that definitely extends to production. Do you agree that we need more women in those roles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I, I should say that sounds like such a simple question. Systemically, I also think, okay, like, what is it? What is responsible for the fact that so few women, particularly on like chart topping songs, like it's such an asymmetry, you know? And why is that? And so I'm aware too of like, when do I encounter women behind boards in roles that are unusual? And, you know, very often I'm aware of like, when I'm on tour, I just played a show in DC at the Black Cat. Elisa was behind the boards. And even just like taking a moment to say, yo, thank you. And you're crushing it and kill it. Because so many of us wear a lot of hats as we go, right? It might be that she's she's also mixing and probably is in a band and singing on the side, you know, or playing guitar. And so, yeah, I think taking a moment even to just shout out those who are doing it and shine a little light when you're holding the flashlight to wield it responsibly, you know, and to be mindful of like when someone has graciously shined it on you. Absolutely. And also to be intentional about your hiring practices. I forget the exact words that you use, but they were great. You said something about like breathing in the culture, like we're all products of what we were born into. Right. And so it's so easy to have the default of like, OK, so I'm going to hire a producer and it's going to be this dude and in the mix, the end mix engineer who has this resume and da 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 or the LD, if you're going to go out on tour and you're front of house, like to like make intentional choices. Maybe they don't have the biggest resume, but like to try to bring women and queer folks in so that they can start to build their resume. You know, it's like, right. where does that tipping point begin? And then it goes back even further to institutionalized sexism and racism in those programs. Like I literally just had a conversation the other day with an artist who went to Berkeley and not that long ago, <laughs> and she ended up dropping out because she just couldn't handle the sexism and the misogyny oh. in those programs. Oh. And I think you're right, though, about hiring practices, particularly because I think that it can be easier and appropriate for us to, you know, criticize systemic institutional errors without realizing that, like, yo, even if it's tiny, you are the power broker in your tiny little personal sphere. And I think a lot of times there's a disconnect between the amount of energy that we spent managing up and the amount of energy we spend managing down. Yes. 
Dessa, it's been so awesome to have you here. Before we wrap up, we always do the Shiro's magic wand, which I've been told I have to look this up. I told somebody about this exercise and they said, did you know that that's actually like a therapy tool? Certain therapists will do this at the end of your session, which I think is really interesting. But anyway, this is a moment where we imagine change in our industry for women and for queer folks. So I give my guests the Shiro's magic wand and I say, with this wand, you could change anything in music. Music and in the music industry for women and for queer people. First wave of the wand, what would you change? I think it would be looks. I'd love to know what the world would be like if looks weren't the first or second most important thing in an artist's or in a, in a woman's career slash life. I wonder some of the unexpected changes that would blossom if that weren't like the brass ring that must be pursued even while pursuing other (laughs) life goals. Yeah, I think it would change a lot. If we could get that down to like the fourth most important thing, I think the world would look so different in the arts and outside of them. That's an awesome wish. Why don't you pick a track for us to go out with today? This is the artsiest track on the record, and this is called Rothko. You see shapes inside the paintings, but all I see is black. A chapel here in Houston where we're standing back to back Questions here are useless, nothing answers back But I can't stop my mind from trying All it wants to know is why Other people's prayers hanging in the air Between you and me and everything We've kept on set so carefully I don't want to care so much for someone I can barely see But I can't stop my body pining All it wants to do is try Sense is just a wheel to spin. For all we try to invent, we wind up here again. Me without a hill to die on. Guess I'll have to heal from this. Pull you and a pair of pythons make my own caduceus. We seem to be ending before we begin. It's like losing the feeling in phantom. With thanks once again to Dessa. Thank you for being here on Shiro's. What an honor. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Many thanks to Dessa for being with us. Her new album, Bury the Lead, is out now on Doomtree Records. Shiro's is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. Shiro's is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit shirosradio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the Shiro's shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at Shiro's Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen into your podcast that helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening.